as an engineer and researcher, sometimes you're removed from the impact of your work. I know impact gets you where you it gets used a lot, but truly, like you're a little bit removed from the impact of your work. It's it's highly motivating, at least for me personally, to be able to talk to to our customers and be able to address their problems and be able to kind of like shift features or share solutions or whatever might be the case that solve the problems and that close and tight feedback loop is something that's a little bit new to me and something that I've been able to experience with Dashboards. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. It's a big help for us to get this podcast in front of more people. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor and an advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies. And as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And of course, the added bonus, you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, John Porter writes this week in The Verge Online that Sony AI ethics researchers are testing machine vision against a diverse range of skin hues and skin tones. First off, who knew Sony had an AI ethics lag? Second, I applaud their work as we wrap up the writer's strike and think about how AI is infiltrating every aspect of Hollywood. The researchers point out the flaws in traditional light-dark detection algorithms. Google, for example, promoted the introduction of the Monk Skin Tone Scale last year, which uses a 10-point scale to measure a diverse array of skin tones ranging from dark to light. Another commonly used measure is the Fitzpatrick scale, which consists of six categories and which Meta has said it has used in previous research. The lead Sony researcher says, our hope is that the work we're doing here can help replace some of the existing skin tone scales. In a blog post, they note that current scales don't take into account biases against East Asians, South Asians, Hispanics, Middle Eastern individuals, and others who might not neatly fit along the light to dark spectrum. Kudos to Sony. As always, we will link to the full article in today's show notes. And now shifting to this week's conversation. Prasad Kothikar and his co-founder Prati Sharma founded Dashworks in 2019. After launching from Y Combinator to make it easier for employees to find better answers at work, Prasad and the team have since raised $9.5 million from an exceptional group of investors led by 0.72 Ventures. Before founding Dashworks, Prasad held machine learning engineering roles after completing his master's in computer science at Stanford, where he worked alongside legends in the Stanford AI lab, including Sebastian Thrun and Vijay Pandey. Without further ado, Prasad, it really is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you share a bit more about your background and how you got into the space. Thanks, Dan, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, essentially, to your point, uh, before before starting Dashworks, my background was as an AI researcher and engineer. I had 
experience working in different domains in AI, whether it be robotics and software configurability at CMU, in graph-based active machine learning in my undergrad at University of Wisconsin-Madison, using language models for drug discovery and biochem applications at Stanford, and also using then language models for productivity applications, especially for sales teams at Stanford with Sebastian and his team, specifically his startup, Cresta. And then later, briefly, also using machine learning for robotics applications at Blue River. So this broad experience with AI kind of gave me a different perspectives about how AI could be useful in our daily lives and especially in our workplace. And also during this time, especially in my time in the industry, I became poignantly aware of one of the pain points that eventually motivated us to start Dashworks, which was that while it's really easy to find information on the internet, but it's surprisingly hard to find answers to our own questions at work. And that's really what got us interested in, in solving this problem with Dashworks. I started my career in enterprise search 25 years ago when there were pretty crude tools, Verity and various kinds of keyword-based indexing tools. Back then, it was easy to justify why there was so much pain <laughs> associated with enterprise search, because you knew how the tools actually worked. Uh, since then, there's been a ton of innovation. How come we're still talking about the same discoverability and pretty foundational problems that are holding back enterprise search? Yeah, that's a that's such a fantastic question. And the way I see it, there have been like a couple of like three distinct attempts at enterprise search, and it's roughly mirrored how the enterprise software ecosystem has evolved as well. The first set of enterprise software applications were on-premise tools. This was back in, say, 1990s, early 2000s. Then came the top-down enterprise software delivered through SaaS, the likes of Workday and Salesforce. And now we're living in the third wave, uh, which has led to the by far the most proliferation of SaaS tools as well, where you have bottoms-up adoption of tools, uh, ranging from wikis like Notion to task managers like Asana to chat software like Slack. And enterprise search attempts have also had to evolve with these ecosystem changes. One of the paradoxes, so to speak, in this space is like, again, going back to the question, like, why is it so easy to find information on the web and what's kept enterprise search back? And one of the reasons behind this is, in, in, our, in our opinion, that APIs are hard to work with. And so while technology has improved from keyword to semantic understanding and now generation as well, in order to connect with different services and solve this discovery problem where information is scattered across different services, you need to build custom API integrations with all of your apps, whether it be Slack or Notion or Google Drive. And that can be a huge overhead, not just to build, but also maintain. So a lot of the work that enterprise search products have to end up spending on is actually this building and maintenance of an API with different services. And this is in stark contrast with how things work on the web, where everything roughly follows the same data format, HTML, now JavaScript, and through HTTP. And that makes it really easy for Google to index billions of web pages. So the, one of the things that we think about is what would it take for a system like Dashworks or another enterprise search tool, which is connecting broadly with different services, to be able to index an app as easily as it is to index a website. But the technology is not there yet, but it's making making some promising strides. So generative AI is really good at performing generative tasks, generative language tasks, which is different from a traditional search-based or a discovery or a retrieval task. Why is there so much investment and enthusiasm going into generative AI first approaches to solve the search problem? 
Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think part of it goes back to the user experience itself. What we what we find with with customers and even from our own use, probably all of us have realized this is traditional search has some limitations. One of them is you need to remember the right keywords to oftentimes search for. Let's say you can solve that with some better semantic understanding, but oftentimes you also don't want to peruse huge blocks of text in documents. You're looking for something very specific and exact answer that, that you have for the question that you have. And that's really the promise of generative AI, that generative AI can bridge that gap, A, make the questions a lot more richer, a lot more nuanced, and not have to think about how to specifically word a question or the right search query to come up with, but then also present the information in a way that's much easier to digest, much more personalized to that question and to you. And that's where we are seeing that generative AI have most of the impact for search use cases. When you think about the right way to apply generative AI to enterprise search, I absolutely agree about the user experience being better. I think that's what has captured our imagination is being able to interact with these technologies that feel so human in a way that interacting with Google never felt human. But once we get past kind of that, the NLP layer, is that the useful limit of using Gen AI, or does it go deeper? Is it is it the right tool to be doing things like semantic search and the other things that are really the big blockers when it comes to you know better discoverability? Yeah, that's a that's a great observation as well, and something that mirrors our own experience. Where I think generative AI has promise for knowledge management, knowledge discovery in enterprises. I don't consider it a panacea just yet. I think we'll need there will be other things that we'll have to either build on the product side or workflows that we'll have to adapt around this technology to be able to really solve knowledge discovery, knowledge management. And that's that's what we also, that's how we also work with our customers where we like try to bridge the gap more holistically. But generative AI for what it's worth can have a big impact on semantic understanding. That's something that's been demonstrated over the last six or 12 months where it's able to understand much more complex questions, much more nuanced questions, much more specific questions than traditional keyword search terms would be able to do and uh, the presentation of the information. But a few things that doesn't solve, for example, are obvious things like, let's say, what questions should I even be asking? Like that's the ultimate knowledge discovery. If you think about it, it's like the unknown unknowns. Like what is something that I don't know, I don't know. And that's something by definition is very hard impossible for humans to do. And generative AI still relies on an input box where you have to feed in a question and get the right response. And I could go into like other similar fundamental issues with the way generative AI is getting applied to. There will be evolution of products where it, products using the current technology will be able to address some of these problems. But I still do think that there is some human element to it and some workflows element to it that as of today's technology will need to be done to be able to really solve the problem of knowledge discovery management inside workplaces. So I want to pose a challenge to you that I certainly found in my early days in enterprise search, and that's that unlike consumer search, where often you're looking for facts that may be contained in a web page, as an enterprise user or an employee, oftentimes you're looking for a task to be completed. So it's about a workflow. It's about something that goes far beyond just a, the retrieval of a fact. When you think about the technology that you're developing and, and maybe the, the role of generative AI, 
how do you think about introducing like what now we kind of call them like agents or you know autonomous agents as opposed to uh, a, a semantic search problem they're kind of different outcomes but i think they're both critical for enterprise users how do you, how do you think about the two as you're as you're building product yeah absolutely i think we do think that that's the next evolution of enterprise search which is a system that can not only read information from your apps or your integrated services and present it in a text format but also make that information actionable and write back to the apps as well whether it be updating your crm or filing a leaf for you in your hris or responding to a coworker whatever might be the case we do think that that kind of experience is a natural evolution for the technology and something that we'd be mindful of in in terms of how we are setting up the product but also what we're hearing from our customers they're equally excited and and, and more broadly the the space that they are excited about the technology kind of moving in that direction as well so i would argue that the state of generative ai today is extremely immature and certainly immature relative to the insane expectations that the world has for what it can do um when you look at the limitations whether it's memory or hallucinations or replicating human bias or cost or yeah i could go on right the list of things that are holding back generative ai um as a technologist which, which concerns you most yeah i think one trend that i expect to continue playing out is so to speak the scaling laws which is basically like more data and bigger models more compute you get better ai that can understand things better and follow instructions better is quote unquote more intelligent so those are less concerning for me as a technologist because those are things that the market pressures and the will kind of like mean that over time those issues will get resolved a little bit better i think in terms of true concerns i i do think like I, i'm not certain if and i think that seems to be the consensus from my understanding as well that i'm not sure if llms as they stand today are sufficient though for all types of tasks so any task that falls outside the realm of what llms in theory can do of course we want to be mindful of its technologies that are like that our product and our customer experience user experience doesn't depend on those things like hallucination i expect to get better like in in the sense like the hallucination rate be going lower for sure over the next 3 to 6 months and we are already seeing rapid progress along those lines I expect like cost to continue going down I expect latency to continue going down but some of these like multi turn agent like workflows i think it waits to be seen whether whether and what would really be required to be able to pull them off because one of the challenges with those systems as well is that by definition since you're multi turn errors compound and so every step if it's introducing errors over time if you have like a multi step process introduce if if your process relies on llms in multiple steps these errors can kind of quickly blow out of proportion and really impact the user experience so those uh, those kinds of workflows are something that we are not going all in on just yet and trying to be mindful of where the technology is some of the most mind blowing examples of the future of llms are what i would call chain of thought machine reasoning where you're actually seeing one or potentially multiple autonomous agents thinking quote put in in air quotes thinking reasoning and then taking some action that may involve a multi-step process booking travel for example or modifying an appointment or 
something where there's you know a whole sequence of events that might need to be taken and each step might be dependent on the previous one does that follow the pattern that you're saying where the error rate may propagate as it chains together more tasks or it, 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 to me that's so fundamental related to the promise of the technology is it at something that we can get really good at doing with gen ai yeah, I do think that like open-ended agent-like behavior, at least I'm not aware of any solutions that propose or promise that just yet. And part of the reason for it is because of compounding errors. And there are some other like uh, some other challenges there in that solution space as well. So promising directions there seem to be where you have scoped in the use case for a specific set of tasks or a specific set of use case that still is able to deliver value to the customer. And there you can kind of essentially tune the system to be able to execute those workflows in a reliable enough manner that 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 is still useful. And I don't think that this analogy holds true in all cases, but you know, in some weird way, like you don't want this to be like the self-driving car space where the last mile ends up kind of uh, hurting user experience and time to market significantly. So being able to kind of like build the plane while you're flying it is like really critical. So that that's how we're at least thinking about the agent-like space. It's amazing how just in 10 months, it feels like we've gone through a decade's worth of innovation and experimentation. In the search space, one of the um, kind of the buzzy approaches seems to be RAG or retrieval augmented uh, generative AI or generation. I um, would love to get your thought as someone who's as much of an expert in this space as exists. Is is that just the kind of approach du jour or is RAG something that's going to fundamentally change how Gen AI can be used for search problems? I, I, do, I do think like the fundamentals of RAG are pretty sound. I, I'm not too certain if it'll stay, stand the test of time, but as of today, by far, it's the best way to rely, to reliably get information that's accurate and doesn't hallucinate because you're grounding it on actual documentation or facts or knowledge bases. It itself has some challenge. It's not, again, like a, a panacea because it's, again, only as good as oftentimes the information that exists. So if your information is out of date, it's stale, it's inaccurate, it's conflicting, RAG is, doesn't solve all of those cases, but it significantly improves factual resp responses from any AI system. I do think as well that RAG is a little bit of a retrofit you LLMs took off and, and chat GPT was a little bit of a revelation for a lot of people. And then RAG has been kind of retrofit to how LLMs kind of happen to come about. I think that there are ways that you can actually make a retrieval augmented generation from like in the training aspect as well. So you don't have to kind of train an LLM to be independent of a retriever and then use RAG on top of it, which is the uh, de facto approach today. But potentially incorporate a retriever in the training as well. And there's a lot of promising work going on in that direction. So I expect it to evolve in that direction, but the fundamentals would probably remain still the same where you are relying on a, a knowledge base or a corpus for up-to-date factual information and using that to ground the generative AI's responses. So here you and I are having a conversation, both AI entrepreneurs and many outside of the AI entrepreneurial community would say, you shouldn't even try to do that thing you're doing because big tech is going to own the data. They're going to own the compute. They're going to own the resources. And so any use case 
you can come up with, you're going to have a massive disadvantage because whether it's, you know, Google, Amazon, Meta, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, is, is just watching and, and they're going to pick off these use cases. Um, I assume, like me, you don't agree with that, but I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on why big tech isn't going to win here. Yeah, I think I don't mean to claim that big tech, but I think there's definitely a huge opportunity for startups because there's so much to be rethought and there's this just creates a fundamental shift in terms of how users interact with software and how softwares get built as a result. So there's just like a huge amount of opportunity and white space, in my opinion. So no single team can probably capture it in a really short amount of time. So I do think that there, there is an opening to be had and there is a lot of customer value to be created. And I think the challenge will be to identify the things that don't exist as always in entrepreneurship where what are the products and solutions that don't exist today versus and being able to kind of bridge that gap. Some approaches that I think are promising are, of course, like focusing on a niche, doing it much better, counter-positioning against some of the large incumbents and so on. But the fundamental belief that I have is that since this is such a transformative shift in terms of how we interact with computers and machines more broadly and how technology gets built, that there's a huge amount of surface area and customer problems and customer value to be created. And so that's really what creates, that's that's where startups can actually thrive. We talk a lot on this podcast about what it means to practice responsible AI. And I'd like to know as a CEO, how do you think about who is responsible if Dashworks makes an automated decision, either take both cases, either it has a good answer and it doesn't provide it, a false negative, or it has a bad answer and it does provide it a false positive, and it it potentially could impact an employee because they act on that automated decision or the recommendation. Who's responsible when that when that happens? If if the old, you know the algorithm was authored by Dashworks, yeah, that's a that's a way. I, I think that's something that as a society and as a as kind of like technologists and we'll have to definitely like have these conversations and figure out what what the right approach there is i think part of it is as a consumer we we all need to realize and i try to remind myself and and other people that i know as well that this technology is very nascent and it we we should not claim that we should not think of it as even factual machines there will be cases where this thing will go off. By definition, like there will be false positives, there will be false negatives. You can reduce the likelihood of it a lot, but it, it will happen. Like That's just like how probability will likely work. And there, there'll be cases where it'll get it wrong. So just having that extra step in, in your own way that you interact with the AI is really critical. And then I think uh, in terms of who is responsible today, I don't think that there are any, of course, laws that hold say products or services responsible but i guess it, let's look forward and who should be responsible if that's the question uh, i think part of it will require like broader discussion debate and and also nuance like okay uh, to your point like did it cause harm to the person directly or was this used as a tool that caused harm or was there negligence and was it misinterpreted there's so many different ways of like slicing and dicing this but tldr is i think part of the responsibility will likely also be on the 
I'm not sure where exactly on the stack. Is it going to be on the foundation LMs? Is it going to be on the product or service that directly interacts with the customer? But is it like a computer, which at least as far as I'm aware, like computers are not responsible for, like the computer manufacturers are not responsible for anything bad that happens on social media websites. So clearly that's not the stack that we've aligned on that where responsibility lies. But is it like a car manufacturer where if a car is faulty, then the car manufacturers are held responsible in a lot of, in most cases that I'm aware of at least. So part of it will also require that level of nuance, but I do think like somewhere in the stack or potentially the last layer, whatever might be the case, part of the responsibility will become shared. Uh, I'm not sure to what degree, to what extent, and through discussions and broader debate, I think uh, we will be able to kind of like have clear understanding of that as a society as well. Anything that you do as a leader with your team to raise awareness to the potential impact of of the decisions that Dashworks is making? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. I think part of it is user education and customer education. We have, for example, in our product itself, we start by educating the user about how Dash AI works and what its limitations are. And part of it is about explaining that Dash AI will not get everything correct. And this is by far the industry norm as well. If you look at, say, even consumer generative AI products like ChatGPT or Complexity or, or other other attempts in the space. I think that that's part of it. And then what we also try to do in the product is actually make it easier for our users and customers to verify the response. I think that's part of the solution, in my opinion, where you need the AI to be able to kind of explainable AI has been a thing for a while. But in the context of generative AI, where people are using it on their work, in their workplace or to get work done, it becomes even that much more important that the AI be able to explain its results or makes it really easy for the user to verify the responses. For example, we of course provide references to your Notion Wiki or Google Drive file or Slack message, any information internally from the workplace that was used to generate the response. But now we're also providing a summary or an explanation as to why the AI thought that this is the right resource. And this helps the non kind of uninitiated or somebody who is not familiar with this topic as much which the which they have asked a question about to verify this was the right response so things like that actually can i'm optimistic can go a long way to a set the right expectations with the customers and educate them that okay there will be cases where dashia will get things incorrect but then also give them tools to actually make that decision for themselves on a case-to-case basis there's a lot of people who look at what dashworks is doing and say this is the end of millions of call center jobs or millions of back office jobs. Do you think there's ever a time when a technology like Dashworks can eliminate the need for a lot of back office functions that currently power these kinds of enterprise use cases? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I think that's a very timely question, of course. I personally don't see that happening with the technology today. I think what will likely happen is that likely smaller teams will be able to, so you won't need to potentially grow the team as much so yes in some way like you know like existing team members if they become more efficient there will be some redistribution of effort and redistribution of resources but i think going back to the point that we discussed earlier i still think that there is a need for a verification of the ai's responses and the ai's uh, execution that requires a human as of at least today and i i am not too certain that in the near term um potentially in the next 12 
to 24 months, things will of course continue getting better and so on. But you'll need an AI, need a human to be able to kind of like verify the the response quality from an AI, and you probably won't trust it to make deployments on your prod or potentially completely replace like a, a sales rep and and do all of their tasks and so on. I also feel like in general, in 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 high functioning teams, there's oftentimes way more work to get done, and you've probably experienced the same as well. Then there there are there is time available. So I expect actually AI to alleviate some of that work where there's just like too much to get done. Oftentimes in in fast growing startups, fast growing companies, and high functioning teams, and I expect like AI to kind of make it easier to be able to manage that work. Prasad, I got to get you off the hot seat. We're about out of time, but you're not going anywhere without answering one last question for me. So you, you've been a researcher. I mentioned, you know, amazing work that you've done with Sebastian Thron and, and other leaders in the space at Stanford. You've been a machine learning engineer at startups at other companies. And now I get a CEO where the roles and responsibilities and the expectations are very different. What is what is that journey taught you about yourself? The biggest change has been that as an engineer and a researcher, sometimes you're removed from the impact of your work. I know impact gets you where you it gets used a lot, but truly like you're a little bit removed from the impact of your work where your output might be a like a feature or a paper or whatever might be the case. And I think some teams do it better than others where engineers are empowered and researchers are empowered to be in close touch with the impact that their work is having. But one of the learnings that I've had over the last couple of years is that it's it's highly motivating, at least for me personally, to be able to talk to, to our customers and be able to address their problems and be able to kind of like shift features or share solutions or whatever might be the case that solve the problems. And that close and tight feedback loop is something that's a little bit new to me and something that I've been able to experience with Dashworks. And that's probably, and I generally enjoy that a lot. So that's probably the biggest learning that I've had over the last couple of years. What has surprised you most about fundraising or growing a team or kind of the things they don't teach you in, in CEO school? <laughs> a lot. I think everything, I think one thing that I've learned is that it's good to have, you need to, uh, not just good to have, you need to have like a, at least your fundamentals covered in terms of things that you're not in, quote unquote, that you don't have experience with. So whether it be go to market or finance, financials or uh, invest fundraising and so on. But it's also important to play to your strengths. Like it's important that uh, you know what your strengths are and and for things that you you probably don't have as much experience in or there are other people who could do a much better job, be able to kind of like work with them and, and collaborate with them. So that's, that's how uh, my approach has changed where I try to focus on my strengths and I'm fortunate to be working with people who complement those strengths in other areas of the business as well. Well, hey, Prasad, it's a very hard set of technical problems that you and the team are, are trying to solve. Wish you all the best of luck and we'll be here rooting for you. Where can the audience learn more? about you and the good work that you're doing. Thanks, Dan. The best place to learn about us is on our website, dashroast.ai. Okay, well, we just started scratching the surface about all the, the, the good work that you're doing. It'll be fun to have a version of this conversation another time when, when the technology has evolved quite a bit. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, that's all the time we have for today on the AI and the Future of Work podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin from People Rain. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>